So if you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please take and turn with me to the book of Revelation once more and to chapter 21. I want us to pick up where we left off last week. We looked at the first eight verses of Revelation 21 last week, and in those first eight verses, we are told that there's a new reality that is coming a new reality that is so grand and so glorious that, that we can't even really begin to imagine it all. It's, it, 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 we learn that there's going to be a new creation where those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and have been forgiven of their sins will be made new creatures. And as those new creatures, we will enjoy a new communion with God that is unlike anything that we've been able to experience in this life. And not only that, but we will have a new condition a condition in which we will live in which there will be no more tears and there will be no more death and there will be no more sorrow and there will be no more pain. All of that is introduced to us there in the first eight verses of Revelation 21. And then from there, John launches into a description of what our new home in heaven is going to look like. In fact, beginning in verse 9, we read that the angel of the Lord takes John and and takes us on a personally guided tour of our heavenly home. And that's what I want us to consider together this morning. So let's go on that journey together. Let's pick up there in verse 9. I'm going to read down to the end of the chapter in verse 21. Hear the word of the Lord. John writes, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. Also, she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates and names written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. Now, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square. Its length is as great as its breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man, that is, of an angel. And the construction of its wall was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the sixth, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon 
to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for your word that you have given to us. Thank you for the visions that are there, things that honestly amaze us and excite us and help us to envision what's coming. And Lord, even there, we realize just how limited we are. Yet we are excited and we're thrilled that that you offer this reality to us, to all who will humble themselves before you and confess their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus. So I pray that you would Encourage us there this morning and help us to see that very clearly. And then also confront us with the fact that so often we settle for so, so much fewer, so many things that are fewer and, and, and don't have the lasting impact that that will have. So God, help us. Help us to see you for who you truly are and help us to understand these words today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you've ever bought a home, I would imagine that, that the, the process that you went through is very similar to what most of us go through. Um, there's a lot of different ways to get there, but generally speaking, you do some investigation about an area that you want to live in, or maybe particularly a neighborhood that you want to live in, or even a particular street that you want to live on. And when you find a home that meets the criteria that you're looking for, it's that first trip that you look forward to when you drive up and you, and you look at that house from the street view the first time. It's called, that cur- does the house have a curb appeal? When you, when you look at it from the street, is it attractive? Does it, does it get your attention? And, and you want it to have that good look and you want it to excite you when you drive up to it. But I know of no one who bought a house just strictly based upon the street view. You have to get up closer. You got to drive. You you got to walk up to the house, and 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 then you look at the porch, or you look at the the the, the brick, you look at the, the the way it's painted on the outside. You go to looking at the landscaping in the backyard. You want to see the house closer, but still, I know of no one that's just bought a house strictly by looking at it from the road or just looking at it from the outside. You want to get on the inside of the house. Because when you get on the inside of the house, that's where you get to see where you're going to live. You get to get in there to see how big the rooms are going to be and how, how the kitchen's laid out and, and how the den is supposed to be situated and, and, and how all the space gets cut up so that that begins to let you know where your stuff's going to fit. And so a house buying process, for, the most of, for most of us, I think probably goes along that same line. I want you to know that I think that that's sort of the way that the angel of the Lord leads John when he begins to show him this new home, this heavenly home that is promised to all who are believers in Christ. In fact, what I would say is is that, that the majesty of our future home is laid out for us in three different views that this angel gives to John and that John records for us to read. 
It moves from a wider angle to a much more narrow angle as we go through it. And so that's how I formulated your outline this morning. And and the first major point that I want you to see from verses 9 through 14 of the text that I just read for you is that we're given a distant view of heaven, a distant view. The angel says that there he tells he takes John away in the spirit to a great and high mountain. And then it says he showed him the great city, the holy Jerusalem. In other words, John is taken to a position where he can see things from a wide angle. And there are three things that he tells us about heaven based upon what he saw. And those are the sub points there that you'll see underneath that first major point. And so the first thing from this distant view that we're able to understand from what John writes is the city's origination. It's the origination. John says that he saw a great and holy city, the New Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now listen, for whatever else that that tells us, it tells us this. There will be nothing in heaven that says made in China. There will be nothing in heaven that says made in the USA. Listen, there's not going to be anything in heaven that says made on earth. Everything stamped in heaven will be stamped with the mark of God's handiwork. And it'll be stamped all over it. According to verse 11, in fact, it will be the glory of God that will not only be on it, but will be in it and through it and all around it. The very nature of that city and those who inhabit it will possess the glory of God. So that's the origination of this new Jerusalem. It's it's God himself. That's where it originates. He's the one who created it. But notice that, that from this distant view, we also see the second thing. It's the illumination of the city. It's the illumination. He says her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, Clear as crystal. Now, that word jasper is really a a, a word that is sort of transliterated from the Greek. The Greek word is yaspis. And so the word jasper kind of comes over from yaspis. But many would say that the jasper there or this yaspis is not like the same opaque jasper stone that we are accustomed to to noting today. In fact, folks like John MacArthur, J. Vernon McGee, others take the, take the idea that yaspis there, actually because it's talked about being clear as crystal, is really something more along the lines of a diamond or, or along the, the lines of, a, of an opal of some sort. The overarching point that John makes, though, is that this city coming down out of heaven looked like a precious gem that was transparent and gleaming and shimmering and glittering. Like a costly gemstone when it is struck by light. So this distant view has provided us a view of the origination and the illumination of the city. Notice the third subpoint there. It's configuration. It's configuration. John tells us that outside the city itself was a great and high wall. Now in ancient times, cities had these high walls as a means built around for, built around the city for for the means of protection. You, you had, it was a defense against invading armies that were coming in to conquer the city. It was a defense against those thieves and, and ne'er-do-wells that wanted to sneak in under the cover of darkness and plunder the city. But, but even in those ancient cities, the people who dwelt within the city would have to have access to go out and to come and to go. And so gates were constructed in that wall that allowed for them to leave and for them to come back. 
Well, notice here that John says there's a wall, a great and high wall built around this city, the New Jerusalem. But it also has gates. It has 12 gates, in fact. And 12 angels sitting at those gates. And the names written on the gates are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And there were three gates to the north, three gates to the east, three gates to the west, three gates to the south. Now, there's a lot of information given to us about this configuration of those gates, but here's what I find interesting. John doesn't tell us when he first introduces the gates to us here, but later down in the chapter, as I read for you earlier, down in verse 25, he tells us that these 12 gates of the new Jerusalem are never shut. They're never closed. They're always open. So so this city has a wall built around it. It has gates inside that wall, and it has angels sitting atop each of those gates. But the wall, nor the gates, nor the angels are there for this city's protection. It's not there to defend this city. Why? Well, we'll come back to it in a bit, but the reality is is that this city and its inhabitants will not need protection. They're not going to need to be defended because as verse 27 tells us of this chapter, nothing that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie shall ever enter that city, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that an awesome thought? And what that tells us is that this city is open and it is accessible to all who have been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. That's an amazing thought to consider. But notice something else about the configuration of this city. John tells us that the wall around the city had 12 foundations upon which were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That piece of information also points us to the accessibility of heaven. Consider how this vision that John has given of these 12 foundations dovetails and coincides so beautifully with what the Apostle Paul writes for us in the book of Ephesians. To the church there in Ephesus, Paul says this in Ephesians 2. These were Gentiles that he's writing to. And he tells them in Ephesians 2 verse 19 and following, he says, Therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You see how how that foundation of the apostles there is part of the process that makes God accessible to folks like us. So John was able to witness all this from a distance. From his wide-angled view atop this mountain, he's He's viewed the origination, the illumination, and the configuration of this city. But then the angel takes him by the hand, as it were, and says, Come on, John, let's let's go look a little closer. In fact, that's the next point that I want you to see. We, We gain in verses 15 through 21 a closer view. A closer view. Now, we know that we've moved closer because verse 15 reads that that this angel brings out this golden reed. And with this golden reed, he goes out to measure the city and its gates and its wall. In fact, that's the, that's the first sub-point that I want you to see. As we move in closer for a closer view, the first thing we see are the measurements. The measurements. 
The angels, he takes these measurements of the city itself in verse 16. Based upon those measurements, we learn that the city is laid out in a perfect square. That its length is the same as its width. But then we also learn that it's not just a square, but it's actually a cube. Because it's the length and the width. And then he says, and the height of that city were all measured, and they were all 12,000 furlongs each. Now, how long is that? What do 12,000 furlongs equate to in something that we can get our minds wrapped around today? Well, the, the Greek word is stadia. Many of you will see that if you're reading an ESV. It's actually, they just, they just take that word and make it stadia for you. So how long is a stadia? Well, various people come up with various things, and I'll just give you the two top main ones. Some have determined that that equals 1,380 miles. Others have said, no, it equals 1,500 miles. I'm going to let you go do all of your research and read up on all of it, and then you can come and report to me which one you think it is. Here's what I know. It's a long way. It's big. In fact, believe it or not, 1,380 miles is pretty close as the crow flies from the tip of Florida to the tip of Maine. That's pretty close to 1,380 miles. Or if you choose the 1,500-mile route, I got one for you there too. It's pretty close to the distance between Atlanta and Phoenix, Arizona. That's roughly 1,500 miles. Now, either way you look at it, whichever number you take, that's a big city. That's, especially when you think of it being as long as it is wide as it is now, that's the one that makes us scratch our heads. The first question that comes to my mind as I was con- contemplating all this and thinking through it is, is how does a city exist like that? What is that? What is that even? How do we even get our minds wrapped around what that must be like? How would we ever, how would we ever move around in it, especially vertically? I can't explain all that. Here's what I know. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that it's 12,000 furlongs by 12,000 furlongs by 12,000 furlongs. If it does not mean that, I do not know what it means. Because that's what the Bible says. So I take the Bible for what it says. And that that, this city is in the shape of a perfect cube. So what do we do about all those questions that we got? Well, here's what I know. Based upon our current existence in space and time and based upon how we are affected by the laws of gravity and based upon our absolute necessity of oxygen and the the effects that atmospheric pressure has upon us I don't have answers for how we're going to exist there but I do know this we learned this last week God went Jesus left and went to create a new place for us it is going to be a new creation. And in the process, we are going to be new creatures. And what I believe is, is that how things are here will not necessarily in any way be how they are there. That physical laws and restrictions that govern us now will not necessarily be the same as what will govern us there. The old things, as we read up in verse 4, have passed away and the new has come. I would also like to point out to you, though, this, that this is not the first time we read about a perfect cube. 
in Scripture. When Solomon built the first temple in Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies was constructed in the form of a cube. According to 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 20, the inner sanctuary where the Ark of the Covenant was kept and where, where God was said to dwell on earth was, as it says there, 20 cubits long by 20 cubits wide by 20 cubits high. Now, a cubit, roughly 18 inches in our way of determining length. So if there were 20 cubits at 18 inches each, that means that Solomon's Holy of Holies that he built was a 30-foot cube. Obviously, when we come to Revelation 21 and we read about this cube that is described there, it is significantly larger than the Holy of Holies that was constructed in that first temple. In fact, G.K. Beale in his commentary on this passage says this, that the area of the cube that he described here in Revelation 21 appears to be the approximate size of the then known Hellenistic world. In other words, all of the world that was known to be popular or populated in the time when John wrote this, could have fit within that cube. Well, James Hamilton picks up on that thought, and he points out that if in Solomon's day, the Holy of Holies was said to be the place where God dwelt on earth in the first temple, then here it seems that John is saying that the whole world is going to ultimately become the Holy of Holies, the place where God dwells. Let me also point out that the other measurement that is described there in verse 17 is a measurement of the wall. And the wall around the city, it says, was 144 cubits. Now, as I mentioned, if a cubit is 18 inches, that would mean that the wall would be approximately 216 feet. But the question is, is that 216 feet high? Well, that doesn't seem to really measure up if you're thinking about the height of the city stretching over 1,000 miles up into the sky. So perhaps it is, as some have suggested, that it's actually the measure of the width of the wall. I don't know. I know what it says, that it's 144 cubits. And this is what I think. I think that John is simply describing the massive nature of that wall. But I also wonder if perhaps the significance of all of these measurements kind of comes back to the, the number 12. You obviously had to see that as we were reading through it, that that there are 12 gates and that there are 12 names inscribed upon the gates and that there are 12 angels sitting on top of the gates and then there are 12 foundations and then then the length and the width and the height, they're all 12,000 furlongs each. And then the, the, the wall is measured at 144 cubits, which all of you math whizzes out there will know is 12 times 12. So... I just don't believe any of that's random. I don't believe that it's just coincidence that everything kind of comes in a multiple of 12. So what are we to make of that? Well, scholars have for centuries pointed to the number 12 as the number of perfection and completeness. And I believe that the number 12 dominates this entire section because it points to the completion and the fullness and the wholeness and the perfection that is described there. In other words, when John is given this closer view of heaven, And the angel measures it for him. He comes away recognizing that this place, this new Jerusalem, our future home, 
is a place of perfect fullness and completion where God himself will do exactly what he declared that he would do, that he would dwell with his people. That's what, that's what we contemplated last week up in verse 3 of this passage. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So those are the measurements. Notice, however, that the beauty of the city is further described by its materials. That's the second sub point there, by its materials. I'm not going to go back and read all of this for you. I'll let you do this for yourself, but I will remind you of what's listed there. It's walls of jasper, city made of translucent gold. I, I, have, no, I have no way of understanding what translucent gold. Look, every, every piece of gold I've ever seen has been opaque. I couldn't see through it, but this is translucent gold. It's a, it's a purity of something far greater than anything I've ever witnessed. And then there's those there's all of those names listed there for the multiple foundations that are listed. You got jasper and sapphire and chalcedony and emerald and sardonyx and sardius and chrysolite and beryl and topaz and chrysoprase and jacinth and amethyst. And I don't even know what most of those are. But I will tell you they are multicolored. From everything I've read there are multiple colors represented in all of those. And then and then each of the 12 gates. Did you notice this? We're made of pearl, not, not a bunch of pearls put together, but of one pearl. Now, can you imagine how big that oyster must have been <laughs> to produce that one pearl for that one gate? There had to be 12 of them. And then John mentions, we talk about the streets paved with gold. Maybe that's the case. John only mentions one street, singular in the Greek, singular noun. Street. It's made of pure translucent gold that appears as transparent glass. There's just so much there for us to ponder, to try to get our minds wrapped around, that I've tied mine into all kinds of pretzel knots trying to think of all of it. It just simply describes such exquisite and, and dazzling beauty. And I think that in many ways that simply is there to point us to the brilliance and the beauty of God himself. You see, the new Jerusalem obviously has to have light within it. We've already been told that it is Jesus himself. It is, the, it is of God and the Lamb that are the source of that light that is pushing out from the inside. And when it does, it, it reflects off of this and refracts off of that and comes through this and, and goes over that to the point where it is such a beautiful display of light, far more beautiful than anything we could ever imagine. And it all points to the beauty of God who created it all and who dwells there with his people. And I love how one person has put it. He says, heaven will be the greatest and grandest crystal ball ever seen. I believe what John saw was so exquisite and so extravagant and so breathtaking that it stretched his ability to even really put it in words where even we can completely understand it. Greg Allen, he has put it this way. He says, the home that the Lord is preparing for us is such a marvelous, beautiful place. And the quality and the magnitude of it really defies language. All we can do is read it in awe and praise God that he loves us so much that he sent his son to the cross so that we could be there with him. Oh, how he must love us. So John was given this distant view. Then the angel takes him in for a closer view. 
The tour's not over yet. Notice the last point on your outline from verses 22 through 27. We see an inside view, an inside view. Now, we know that John is inside the city because he tells us what he doesn't see there. I always think it's interesting that John begins by telling us about our new home when he gets inside, not by telling us what he does see, by telling us, though, what he doesn't see. And the first thing that he says is, I see there's no temple. That's your first sub point. There's no temple. He says, there's no temple there. Why? For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. You see, before Jesus came to earth, the temple in the Old Testament, and even more specifically, as we noted earlier, in the Holy of Holies, in that cube that was there in the Holy of Holies behind the veil within the temple, that was the singular spot that was identified as the dwelling place of God on earth. But you'll recall that when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, according to Matthew 27, verse 51, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the tearing of that veil communicated to the whole world that God was now approachable, that he was accessible. There was no longer a thick, huge curtain to separate men from him. No longer was there need for animal sacrifices to make temporary atonement for sin. Christ Jesus became the once for all perfect sacrifice for sin and his death by it, he created and opened access to God, to those who will come to him by faith. And that reality becomes fully realized in the New Jerusalem, because John tells us that there is in it no temple at all. There's no need of one because the citizens of that city will have an unfettered access to God through Christ. And as John tells us, the Lord God himself and the Lamb are the temple. And God dwells not in a temple made with hands, but he dwells in the midst of his people in the New Jerusalem, which itself becomes the temple. So the first thing that John passes along to us there is that inside that city, he saw no temple. The next thing he saw was that there was no twilight. There was no twilight. Verse 23, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it for the glory of God illuminated. Now, here in this world, we love to see a good sunset. A beautiful sunset is about as pretty of a thing as you can lay your eyes on. A beautiful sunrise for those of you who get up early enough. A beautiful sunrise is also something to enjoy. But I want you to know in heaven, the light of the Lamb will be far more beautiful. It'll be more beautiful than any sunrise or sunset that you've ever witnessed in this life. In fact, notice what God promises through the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 60, verses 19 and 20, he says, The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you, but the Lord will be to you an everlasting light and your God, your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. John tells us very simply that Jesus is the light. He is the Lamb and He is the light. And what that means is that this glorious splendor of Jesus himself is what radiates throughout that city and it produces the illumination that we saw earlier. As one has put it, the light of Christ's glory will be transferred throughout the golden 
translucent glass-like city as if through the gigantic lens of a lighthouse lamp. John saw no temple. He saw no twilight. And finally, notice this. He saw no trouble. No trouble. He tells us that the people of the nations, even the kings of the earth, will walk through the open gates of the wall to the new Jerusalem, bringing their glory with them. Now, let me just say that much has been written by many different scholars who make their best attempts to explain what all is meant by what we read there in verse 24. The best that I can do to help our understanding of it is in light of what we talked about earlier, and that is the only ones who will ever be allowed admittance into this city are those who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And what that means is that things that would have spelled trouble for cities in this world, particularly, let's look at it from John's perspective in the time in which he lived, things that would have spelled trouble for the cities that existed in his time. Whenever a king and their armies were to advance upon a city, I can assure you they were not coming to bring their glory into the city. They were coming to take the city's glory out with them. And all of the things that were inside that city where they came to conquer Here we see there's not going to be any of that there. These kings are going to be bringing their glory with them into the city and offering it to the chief, to the the ruler of that city. Not only that, but John also reminds us there's no night there. So you don't have sunsets. There's no darkness. So, So you don't have to be afraid of the fact that there could be troublemakers who come along. Thieves. Plunderers who come in to take away that which is in the city for themselves. No, no one is coming to create trouble. Why? Because they're not looking for those things anymore to satisfy them. It's not the gold or the pearls or the the, the expensive materials that are made. They're not coming there for that. They're coming there to worship the Lamb. So there's no trouble there. There's no turmoil there. The kings bring their glory into the city. And that's, that's what we begin to see. That's illustrated by the fact that these gates are never shut. They're always open. And what that tells us, and what we learn from reading earlier in the book of Revelation, is that God has already dealt with Satan, and he has already dealt with the forces of evil, and consequently heaven will be a place of perfect peace without the attacks of the adversary. Nothing will ever enter that city that will bring trouble or pain. The only folks there are those whose names are recorded in the Lamb's book of life. Now just imagine that. Can you, can you get your minds wrapped around that? It's hard. It's hard to think of it along those lines. Sin and Satan have brought nothing but death and devastation to humanity ever since Adam sinned in the garden. But one glorious day, all of that will be no more. And those who make up the bride of Christ will forever be with the Lord in the place that he has gone to prepare for us. And when I consider all of that, all I can think about is what an absolutely stunning view has been provided for us here. A distant view, a closer view, an inside view. And then in chapter 22, we find a view from the center. But you're going to have to come back next week for us to look at those verses. Here's what I believe is impressed upon us as we we have studied this this morning. 
It's the fact that in heaven the curse of sin is removed. And we're no longer separated from God. We're we're not separated from God here when we come come to Him by faith in Christ because that wall of separation is removed. And spiritually, He now dwells with us. But in heaven, we will dwell with Him not only spiritually but physically as well. We will dwell with God. And the radiance of His beauty will dominate everything and it will exist everywhere. And the stain of sin will be removed forever. And we will be given an all-access pass to God. The gates are open. The street is paved. And it goes right to the throne. And all the things that we treasure here on this earth, the things that we run after looking for, gold and Silver and jewels and diamonds and pearls, materialistic things. Those things will not be what we treasure in heaven. What we treasure more than anything else there will be God himself. And that's what leads me to my sermon in the sentence this morning, which is this. The real treasure of heaven is not the things that our sinful hearts naturally gravitate toward here on earth, but rather the unobstructed, unfettered, unrestricted access to God that comes only through faith in the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14? Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Because in my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. This place. This place that we've been studying, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus said, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. And then he goes on to say, you know where I go and you know the way. And and, and Thomas said, Lord, we have absolutely no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Lord, we, we can't even begin to imagine where it is that you're going. We don't know what all... When we read Revelation 21, I often feel just like him. I can't even begin to imagine everything that's there. But I do know this. Jesus looked at Thomas and he looks at every single one of us. And he says, I am the way there. I am the truth that will get you there. I am the life that you will experience there. No one comes to the Father but by me. Do you see what Jesus is saying? Do you see what John is telling us? And all access passed to God comes only through Jesus. And he's the greatest treasure that you and I could ever want and ever have. To dwell with him forever. To gaze upon the beauty of his face. To enjoy the rewards that he offers us. This is the treasure that is offered to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me ask you, is your name written there? Is heaven your future home? As Jesus declared, you will only come there through and you only enjoy that unobstructed, unfettered, and unrestricted access to him when you come to Christ by faith, confessing your sins and placing your faith in what Christ has done for you. Have you done that? Will you do that? If that is your testimony, then let me ask you this. What marks your life right now? According to what we have been reminded today, the greatest treasure that any of us could ever have and ever want is to dwell in the presence of God and to know him in his fullness and to be known by him. 
Is that your heart's desire? Or if you're honest, does your heart gravitate to the things that this world offers you? Listen, you can chase the gold and you can chase the diamonds and you can chase the pearls and you can chase the material things. But the only real satisfaction, joy of peace and fulfillment that you will ever experience will come when God is your greatest treasure. As one person has put it, why would you spend your life chasing things that you'll only walk on in the life to come? Pursue the Lord. Seek him. He is the greatest treasure. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your goodness and your mercy to us, and I thank you that you love us as you do. And I thank you that you have gone and prepared a place for us that we might one day dwell with you forever, a place with no more sickness and pain, no more sorrow, but a place that radiates with just absolute light and beauty that is far beyond our imagination, a place where we will never grow old, a place that we will never grow hungry, a place that we'll never fall short of, of, of all of the things that we imagine. And it will be a place where we will have an all-access pass to you. And it only comes through what Christ has done for us. None of us will ever get there on our own. So, Father, my prayer today is if there is one in this room that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that today would be that day that they would fall on their knees before you, confess their sin and trust in you, to be their Lord and their Savior. For the rest of us, that that is our testimony, I do pray that you would remind us that our greatest treasure here in this life and in the life to come is a treasure that is built around a relationship with you, to dwell in your presence. Remind us of that and allow it to transform our hearts. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.